Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 24. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work for the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. We're beginning a new series today, and uh, you know, whether you've grown up in a church or not, there are stories from the Bible that everyone has heard at some point in time, but a lot of times we miss these life-transforming truths at the heart of the stories, and so what we're going to do over the summertime period is we're going to go back to them. We're going to go back to these stories. And uh, in this series, we're going to relearn the meaning of each of these great stories that we had either grown up with or heard at some point in time in our lives. Today, we're going to look at a very famous passage. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. Um, in chapter 1, just to kind of give you a little bit of a backdrop, God creates heaven and earth. And he creates man. And he empowers man. He says, you are put here to rule. But then in chapter 2, he says, 
do not eat from this particular tree or you'll die. So I've given you all empowerment to rule, to subdue the earth, but do not eat from this tree or you'll die. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, despite God's command, Eve abandons the trust of God. She abandons the security of God. She abandons the love of God, and she eats from the tree. What is sin? Sin is that. Sin is abandoning God. Sin is rebellion against God. It's going against his trust. It's going against his wisdom. It's going against his love. If you know anything about the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis teaches us what's wrong with the human race. Why is there evil? Why is there injustice in the world? Now, some people say it's because, well, there's a lack of education or it's the environment, it's society, bad politics. But St. Augustine, the great St. Augustine, a famous theologian, says this, it's sin, original sin. That's the reason. So there are three things we're going to learn about sin today. What it is, what does it do, what are the consequences, how does it end? What it is, what are the consequences, how do you come to an end to sin? First, we're going to look at what it is because we're taught growing up so many different definitions of sin. Prior to verse 6, the serpent, now the serpent represents the totality of evil, the totality of all evil. He comes to Eve and he says this, he asks this, he says, did God really say you must not eat of this tree because you're going to be like God? It's a lie. In other words, what he's saying is you can be your own master. You don't need God in your life. So in verse 6, when Eve looks at this fruit, she says it's good. She reasons. She uses her own judgment. She said it must be. It looks good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. She begins to doubt God. She begins to buy into the lie. What's a lie? What's the lie? The lie is this. God is not out for you. He's not out for your good. After all, why would God withhold this thing that looks good and it's useful Why would he withhold this good thing from me? Another way of saying that is, I know what's good for me. God isn't really out for my good. I know what's good for me. I'm out for my good. What is sin? Sin is putting yourself in God's place. Sin is a gross overestimation of yourself, a gross overestimation of your value and your worth apart from God And it affects every desire, every thought, every decision, every action, because in the end, you want to take God's place. We all want to be our own masters. We all want to take God's place. Now, verse 6, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit from the tree. And in verse 7, immediately they realize they're naked. There's shame. There's, There's shame in their lives. So they sow these fig leaves to make a covering for themselves because of their shame, to cover over their nakedness. This is the beginning of all of us here covering over our shame. And so in verse 8 and 9, God calls out to them. He says, where are you? In verse 10, Adam says, I heard you, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. That beautiful sound of God's voice that they're so used to hearing, that word of God, that daily walk with God. And now Adam, what does he do? He hides from God. Because sin exposes, it reveals our weaknesses and our vulnerability and our helplessness. We're always vulnerable. We're always weak. We're always helpless. Now, we don't want to accept that. 
we want to run from that. Now we see it. It's in front of our eyes. And we're ashamed of that. And we can't stand that. And so what do we do? We cover up our weaknesses. We cover over our weaknesses with good things. We adorn ourselves with good things. We try to hide from these things. What is sin? Sin is hiding from God. Sin is an alienation from God. Verse 11, God asks, Who told you that you are naked? Did you eat from this tree? How does Adam respond? The woman that you put here, she made me do it. Adam blames God. Adam blames the woman. Adam blames Eve. That alienation from God because we're naked and because we're exposed, it always leads what? To blaming everybody, everybody else around us but ourselves. We blame everybody else. Adam blames God. Adam blames Eve. We're le- we're, it leads us to blame other people. And it always, results as, it always results in broken relationships. What Adam's really saying is, it's not my fault. Send her to die. You made the mistake of putting her here. It's not me. It's her. It's you. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God. That makes you the judge. That's why we're always judging it's the, this is the birth of blaming others. This is the birth of justifying ourselves. This is the birth of, of defending ourselves, alienating ourselves from other people. It always results in a distance from God, a distance from others, and a justification of yourself in the end. That's why we're so defensive. It's why we're always, we can't accept the truth about ourselves when other people present them to us. It's why we're always stepping over other people to get ahead. It's why we're elevating ourselves, sometimes by pushing other people down. Whenever you remark about people to make yourself what you're doing is you're, you're saying bad things about people to make yourself feel better, but it's really at the cost of other people. Jean-Paul Sartre, famous uh, philosopher, worldly philosopher, uh, he, he tells a story. I probably shared this with you at some point. He tells a story about a keyhole. And he says, here's this man. He says, behold, I look through this keyhole, and I see what? A naked woman, a woman who's undressing. And so He's fascinated. And he feels a sense of power because he's able to look through this keyhole and she's undressing and he, she, he sees all her flaws. He sees all her beauty, all her flaws, and he feels a sense of power because he gets to look through and see everything. She has no idea. She's vulnerable. She's weak. She's helpless. But he's got power. And then all of a sudden, there's this wave of fear that goes over him because he realizes he himself is naked and behind him is another keyhole. Why do we always talk about other people behind their backs? It's because if you confront them, you're going to risk hearing some truth about yourself. But you're not interested in hearing truth about you. Because what you want, and the whole reason why we gossip, and the whole reason why we talk about other people, and the whole reason why we push other people down, and the whole, all the reasons why we punch holes in other people's thinking and other people's lifestyles is what? We're trying to justify ourselves. They're the ones who are naked. You feel naked. You know you're naked, so you want to expose the nakedness of other people. It makes you feel better. Adam is saying, it's your fault. It's her fault. I'm okay. At the root of every broken relationship, every broken family, today's Father's Day, every broken family, every racial tension, every lie, every act of chauvinism, every inner pathology at the root of everything is sin. 
So if you're constantly criticizing other people, but you're not confessing, if you're constantly gossiping about other people and you're hurting them, but you're not repenting, you're really just living out a selfish, proud, self-absorbed, self-justifying nature of sin, indwelling sin in your life until one day that's all that's left. That's sin. That's what it is. Now, what are the consequences? The consequences, you see in verses 14 to 19, it's the curse. In verse 24, both Adam and Eve, they're equally banished. One person is not more banished than the other. Sin is not so much breaking God's rules as it is breaking God's heart. And so that distance has consequences. Both of them are equally naked. Both of them are equally experiencing shame. Both of them are equally cursed. Notice, the serpent, the male, the female, they're all cursed. What does sin do? At that moment, you think it's going to increase your options, increase your potential, increase your freedom, increase your joy. But what it ends up doing it is it ends up stripping away your options and your potential and your freedom and your joy. And as a result, sin degrades. Sin devolves. This man, this woman, and the serpent, they're the ones who are placed on equal plane now. Sin has a way of devolving you. Sin has a way of bringing you to par with an animal, with a serpent. It dehumanizes you. Why? Why does it do that? Because you weren't designed to feel shame. You weren't designed to lie. You weren't designed to hide. You weren't designed to rebel. So when you do, you're actually living against your design. You're not living in accordance with your design. You're living against it. In the movie Chariots of Fire, it's a famous movie in the 80s and won an Oscar for Best Picture. You have Eric Little. It's a true story. Eric Little. It's a true story about an Olympic track champion who ends up becoming a missionary to China. He was a gold medalist, but he's a Christian. And what he says, he's, there's this one uh, scene where he's walking with his sister, and, and they're talking. And she basically says, why do you run? And he... he explains and he says this when I run I feel God's pleasure John Coltrane famous jazz musician probably one of the best if not the best the greatest at the pinnacle of his career after one of one particular performance when he was finished he proclaimed nunc dimittis it's a Latin phrase that Latin phrase means now dismiss what that means is I'm done I will never, ever, I cannot play this piece ever again more perfectly than I've done today. I'm ready to go. That's what we're designed for, to recognize and experience our ultimate potential, to feel God's pleasure as we do it. Sin says God is holding you back from realizing your ultimate potential when reality is Sin is holding you back. Your sin, your flaws. You take a fine-tuned German-engineered car, turn on the engine, pop open the hood. Have you ever seen a, nicely, uh, a nice German-engineered car? That engine is pristine. It hums. It just runs. And there's not a single glitch. There's no tick. There's nothing. It just hums. And the reason why is because German engineering, I mean, we all know there's a design. 
Every placement has been intentional. There's this integration of every piece with respect to each other. There's a coherence of that. That's what you're hearing. That's Genesis chapter 1. That's Genesis chapter 2. Now, take a wrench. Open up that engine and pop that wrench in there. What happens? Everything starts to break. The car's probably still going to run. They're tough engines. But it's never going to work in accordance with its design ever again. What happens? Now, where there was integration, there's disintegration. Where there's coherence, there's incoherence, right? Where there's, there's this sonance, right? You hear it. You hear it humming. Now there's dissonance. That's the curse. That's the meaning of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. And it affects everybody. It affects everything. George Whitfield, incidentally, he had a hand in founding the University of Pennsylvania right here in our city. George Whitfield, he was an Anglican minister. He says, when you're walking down the street and you hear the dogs barking and growling at you, the reason why they're doing that, he says, is because they know that you are at odds with their creator. That's why they're growling at you. That's why they're snarling at you. That's why they're barking at you. Because they know that you are the reason why there's dissonance in this world. What are the consequences? Verse 8, God is walking in the garden. He walked with Adam and Eve. It's an amazing thing. He, he, he longed at the end of the day, in the cool of the day, the best part of the day, to walk with Adam and Eve. It's an Old Testament idiom. That, meant, that means that God was seeking intimacy. He's so desperate that he just wants and, and loves intimacy with us. But the garden was eerily empty that day. Why? Because Adam and Eve rebelled. And as a result, they were hiding. They were hiding away for the first time in their lives. There was this distance. And so we know that God, here he is, he's out in the open, but Adam and Eve, they're closed. God desires a relationship. Adam and Eve are hiding, covering over themselves, breaking relationship, even with each other. Sin results first in alienation. Human beings, we are radically relational. That's our design. Why is that? It's because God... By nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian Union, right? They are an intimate community. They are one, intimate community. And we were built in that image. So we were built to be intimate. We were built to be in relationship. But here, God says what? For the first time, where are you? Where are you? Adam says, I was naked. And so I hid from you. Nakedness is also an Old Testament idiom. It represents shame, a psychosocial brokenness or discomfort. And so when our relationship with God became severed, then our relationship with other people became broken, severed. Why? Because we're alienated from God. We're built for relationship. Now we're pouring the weight of that intimacy that we had lost in other people. We're putting the weight and the pressure and the expectations, all the fulfillment that we desire from our relationships. Now we're pouring it out, the weight of that onto others. You know what that's like? That's like driving a five-ton truck over a one-ton bridge. Everything's bound to crash. People will disappoint you. People will hurt you. We're designed to be at one intimate with the Father, intimate oneness with the Father. And once that broke, that bridge fell apart. Deep inside, 
we know that we'll never have in our relationships what we can have with God because God is so faithful and so loving and so good and so forgiving. But deep inside we know we can't find that in other people. So what do we do? We sew up fig leaves because of our inadequacies, because of our weaknesses. We know we can't fulfill that in other people. We are weak. We are helpless. We're broken because of sin. And we are appealing to broken people because of their sin. And so what do we do? We cover over our sins with fig leaves. Every one of us has fig leaves that we're using to cover over our sins, our weaknesses. We use insufficient means to cover up our nakedness. It's our spiritual resume. It's our physical resumes. And that's why we are so into looking good. And that's why we're so desperate to clean up our reputations. And it's why we're so desperate for somebody who will love us and say, you are beautiful. You are more beautiful than anybody I've ever seen. The reason why we want that is because we once, we once had that. That's what we had with God. And it was so full. And it was so good. And yet we lost that. And now we've been desperately seeking that in other people. We want that affirmation from other people. Look, Opening yourself up because of sin, it's not natural. We are not naked before each other. We do not like it when our, our stuff is exposed. We don't like that. It's not natural, but it's supernatural. When you are able to open yourself up to a person in community groups, for instance, that's supernatural. That's not something that you're doing because of your virtues. That goes against this broken design that you are built in. It's supernatural. When you really open yourself up, what you're saying is, I may get exploited. Listen, I'm a pastor, all right? I know what it's like to get exploited. You may say, I may get exploited. I may get hurt. You may see all my flaws. I may see all your flaws, but I don't want to hide. I'm giving you a warrant from my arrest. That's what you're doing when you're opening yourself up. I don't want this relationship on my terms. I want to be weak in front of you. And you are weak in front of me. This is the essence of real relationship. This is who we are with God. When we're dependent on God perfectly. You know what kills that? Verses 12 and 13. The woman you put here. She made me do it. When we start blaming other people, when we start back-talking, when we start gossiping, you know what gossip is? Gossip is murder. You're murdering someone's reputation. You're putting yourself above other people because to put them down makes you elevated. I would never, what you're implying is I would never do that. You would never do that. That's why I'm telling you this. We're horrified by these things. The defensiveness results the self-justifying, that's what it is. That's the root. The root of this self-justification is this, the fig leaves. They're tearing away the fig leaves, and you don't like it. What are the consequences of sin? We said it's alienation, number one. Number two, it's suffering. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, there are three things that existed on earth before sin ever even came into the world. You had family, Adam and Eve. Adam met Eve. You had work. Even before sin entered the world, you had work. That means that someday, if, you, 
if you enter in to meet God face to face in heaven, in glory, we'll have jobs. We'll have work, but the work will be fruitful. You see, that's the curse. The meaning of the curse is there's fruitlessness. So you had family, you had work. God said, rule over the earth. Adam took the job of naming all the animals. They were there to tend to the animals. They were vice kings in this kingdom. Lastly, you had rest. God himself rested on the seventh day. So you had work, family, and rest. But look at the curse. Verse 16. I'm going to walk through the curse with you. Verse 16. There will be pains now in childbearing. That's the brokenness of family. Verses 7 to 19. The ground is now cursed. Cursed is the ground. That means your work will now be broken. It's why we're slaves to our work. The ground is cursed. That means now there are natural disasters. There's disease. There's environmental brokenness. He says through painful toil, there will be thorns and thistles. It means no matter how hard you work, there will be failure. No matter how hard you work, there will be loss. There will be fruitlessness. There will be restlessness. And in verses, chapter, uh, verses uh, 23 to 24, God places an angel and the angel holds a famous fiery sword in front of the garden. That's why we're constantly working. What he's saying is, you know what angels were? Angels represent the glory presence of God, the royal glory presence of God. That's what they had. To drive them out east of Eden, and whenever you see the phrase going east, that means that he's going far from God. That's an idiom. He's moved Adam and Eve out East of Eden puts an angel there. Angels represent the presence of God, but the angel has a flaming sword. That means you will never enter into the garden again. You will never enter God's presence again because of sin. There is a chasm that has become so deep and so broken and so wide, you will never, you will die trying to enter back in. That's why we are slaves to our work, friends. That's why we're constantly working for acceptance because we want back in. We're constantly working for acceptance. We're constantly working for our jobs because we want back in. We want the garden, but the thing is we want the garden without God. That's what we're doing. That's the meaning of the sword. You'll never get in on your own. And if you try to get in on your own, you will die trying to get there. The Bible says all of our lives' pursuits is to cover over some form of inadequacy that we feel as a result of that distance, that alienation from God. That's our suffering. The root of all of our inner sufferings is that. Because we've sought to increase our options and potential and freedom and joy without God, and now we're out. And now we've less options, less potential. We feel that way. We feel fruitless, less freedom. We feel slaves to our work and in our lives, less joy. We're out. The result is suffering and brokenness, how do you end the suffering? How do you end the brokenness? What's the end of this all? Is there an end to this? What's the end? Look at the beautiful mercy of God in this text. Not once does he say, you miserable people. Look at everything I've done for you, and now I'm going to turn it opposite for you. That's not what he says. You know, he doesn't destroy Adam and Eve. No, you know, he says, if you eat this fruit, you will die. That's why we die. At the end of the day, there's death. That's the pinnacle of the curse, is that we will all grow old. We will all grow ugly. We will all die. That's the pinnacle. 
That's the curse. But he doesn't destroy Adam and Eve on the spot. In fact, Adam names his wife Eve, which means the mother of all the living. There is a promise here. God counsels them. He starts with a question. He says, where are you? Who, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from this fruit tree? This is God. It's not like he doesn't know the answers. So why does he ask the questions? Why is he asking? It's because he wants them to know. He's teaching them. He's bringing them out. When he drove them out, he drove them out, but first he brought them out. He gave them promise. What he's saying here by asking these questions is he's saying, I want you to know why. I want you to take responsibility for what you've done. Have you ever done that in your life? Even for the small things. It's hard to do that. It's a supernatural thing. He says, I want you to own it, but I'm still pursuing you. I'm still asking you. I'm still going to counsel you. Notice, he doesn't ask the serpent any questions. He doesn't go to the serpent and say, what have you done? That's not what he does, right? The serpent, he knows all evil, total evil. He only asks, he only counsels, he's only working in the people that he loves because he wants to shape you and change you and redeem you. So first, he doesn't destroy them. He counsels them. The second thing you see in God's beautiful mercy, Adam and Eve, they sow fig leaves to cover over themselves. Now you know, leaves are very insufficient. Would you rather wear leaves or would you rather wear clothes, right? Look at what God does. He makes clothes for them. He makes garments for them. He takes these animal skins and he makes garments out of them. Why does he do that? Because he knows the world is hostile. The world is vindictive. The world is violent. The world is dangerous. The fig leaves aren't going to be enough. They're insufficient. Look at the gentleness of God. Look at, look at the pursuing love of God. Look at the providing love of God. Look at the grace of God. He's the one that's been betrayed. Have you ever been betrayed? A lot of people say, well, Donnie, why, why can't God just say, because he loves them, if you love them so much, ah, you know what, I'm going to change the rules. Let's forget the rules. Have you been able to do that ever in your life? Have you ever been betrayed? We've all been betrayed in some ways. We've all been wronged in some way. Are you able to say, ah, let's just forget that this ever happened? If you've ever been hurt deeply in your life, you would know it is impossible to do that because the very nature, when someone betrays you, they take something from you in a way. They take a part of your joy. There's something that you've trusted. They took it and they mangled it. That's what they did. And so there's this debt, this trust that you let them borrow in a sense. They betrayed. And so they owe you back. They owe you for that trust. They owe you in that brokenness. You want them to pay, and the price has to be paid. That's why you want them to hurt. That's why you want to do something back to them. That's why you want to just go off on them. We do that. Every time you don't do that, a part of you dies for that moment, in that moment. There's a part of you that hurts in that moment because you know they deserve it, and you're not doing that. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is you saying, I will pay the price for you. That's what it is right? So whether that person pays 
or whether you pay, somebody's got to pay the price. Somebody's got to hurt. Look at the grace of God. He's been betrayed. He's the one that's been betrayed. He's the one that's been hurt. But he's still loving. He's still proactive. That love is so proactive. It's providing love. But the thing is, this is also a foreshadowing. These garments, these garments came from animals. That means that somebody's blood had to have been spilt. These are coats of animal skin. What does that mean? In order for Adam and Eve to be covered sufficiently, blood had to be spilled. Verses 14 to 15, you see the promise. You see God counsels them. You see God provides for them. And now you see the promise of God. The one time he does speak to the serpent, he speaks and utters a promise to the serpent. And mainly what he says to the serpent is, you will be ended forever one day. He says, you will strike his heel. The son of the woman will come. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. This is what we call the proto-euangelion, the prototype of good news, the prototype of the gospel, a foreshadowing of the gospel. What does that mean? Think about this. Let's say one day you're having a Memorial Day dinner. We have July 4th coming up, July 4th Independence Day dinner. You have a picnic with your family. And a snake slithers his way into your house, right? And so the snake, this venomous snake enters in and he's hissing and he's violent and he's angry. And so everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid. And if that, the longer that snake stays there, what happens? There is danger and violence, possibly death in the family. Now think about it. you got your kids, and you can't control your kids. They're running around, and, and you can't get the food because this snake is there. So your life has in many ways been altered by the snake. So one man in your house comes up, and he grabs that snake, puts it down, and crushes the head of that snake. But before he does that, because it's a venomous snake, and it's an angry snake, the snake strikes him. What happens? Right? The snake is going to bite you. It's got poison, but it's dead. The danger is gone forever. The danger is gone. This snake is not just an animal. It represents all evil. Everything that has ever gone wrong in the world is represented in this snake. And God's promise is one day, the son of the woman, that's why she's named Eve, because she becomes the mother, the foreshadowing mother of that son that will come. The son of this woman will come and crush the head of all evil, all injustice, all sin, all depravity, death forever. C.S. Lewis, he writes in uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read the first book, at the end of the first book of The Chronicles of Narnia, you have this Christ figure, this Jesus figure in Aslan who is a lion. And basically he explains this. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch, the witch represents all evil, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. 
she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. The son of the woman will crush the head of the snake and death will work backwards. That's the promise. But the son, he will strike his heel. The son will be mortally wounded. God tells Adam, obey me regarding this tree. And Adam failed. But even though he was cursed, he lived. He's among the living because of the promise of God. Centuries later, God told another man to obey him regarding another tree. The tree was the cross. The son was Jesus. Adam failed, but Jesus obeyed. But even though he obeyed, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus became the curse. He didn't just get cursed. He was cursed, but he became the curse, and he was crushed. He was crushed. Adam, he was cursed, but he lives. Jesus Christ was cursed, and he was crushed. He died so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know what the word righteousness means? It means you would have the approval of God, the ultimate acceptance of God. You would be justified. You don't need to justify yourselves. You're already justified. If sin is, is us putting ourselves in God's place, then the gospel is Jesus Christ himself putting himself in our place on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. That means that Jesus took the penalty of our sins on the cross so that we would gain the righteousness of God. The righteousness is approval. That means we could be in. That's how you get in. Somebody has to die by the sword to get in. Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. And when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I am experiencing the ultimate brokenness, the ultimate alienation, the ultimate separation from God, the ultimate suffering. The ultimate suffering is what? The wrath of God is pouring out. God unleashed the total wrath against sin on Christ. And that's why he was naked. So nothing would shield him from absorbing that wrath. So yes, there was suffering on the cross. It was physical. It was emotional. He was betrayed by his friends, betrayed by others. There was a rejection there by man. People were hurling insults and mocking him. But that suffering was even more cosmic. It was deeper. It was, it was spiritual. It was cosmic in nature because God himself had forsaken his son in that moment. And he turned away and he pelted Jesus with all of his wrath. And Jesus was naked suffering the sin and the shame, becoming sin, becoming our shame, absorbing the wrath of God in full so that we could get in. We would have his approval. Remember the garden? Remember the sword? 
He was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus Christ experienced the emptiness and the disintegration. His body was falling apart on the cross. But more importantly, God had torn himself away. The Trinity union, God himself had rejected his son. The Trinity was really being ripped apart on the cross. So that means that not only was Jesus experiencing the despair of being apart from the Father, the Father was experiencing the grief of being apart from his son, the loss of his son. Do you see that? Father, Son, Holy Spirit grieving. So that you could be rejoined with God. Every time you doubt, every time you doubt who you are because of your sinfulness, you can look to the cross and know that you're in. Do you believe that? That you're in. Romans chapter 4 says this, Blessed are they whose sins are covered. When you trust that Jesus Christ has covered over your sins, he's covered over all your inadequacy. That's the only covering you need. So when someone comes up to you and criticizes you or blows you up, your soul, it doesn't have to hit the soul. You don't have to fall apart. You know why? Because you can, you can actually have the courage to say some of the stuff you say is probably true, even if you don't see it. Some of the stuff is probably true. Some of the stuff may be false. But my sins are covered in the blood of Christ, and I, it is sufficiently finished. It's done. When the gospel enters in, a Christian says, the resume is not the key. My social reputation is not the key. My cultural righteousness, my race is not the key. Living actively in the love of God is the key. His love. Friends, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. This is God, the creator of the universe. It was his love that kept him on the cross for his people, for us. That's what it was. Plunge yourself into the sacrificial blood of Christ, and there's the end to your alienation. Are you lonely? Plunge yourself into the love of Christ. And your alienation will dissipate from God. There will be a closing of that gap with God. You can open yourself up to others because there's no more resume. There's no need to cover over yourself. You can be honest with others as you are honest with God. It's also an end to the only suffering that can end you. It's an end to the ultimate suffering. The only suffering that you, need to, that you can endure that will end you has already been suffered once and for all by Jesus whose blood has been spilt. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Put your faith in that. It is a firm foundation, friends. Let's pray.